Welcome to the Most Accurate Podcast. My name is Greg Smith and I'm your host. The music on today's show is a song called Another Way of Life by Cloud Nothings. It's the closer from their recent release called Last Building Burning. To hear the full song, plus all the other music from my episodes, check out the Team at B-Sides playlist on Spotify, which is linked in the show notes. Before we get into the show, I want to remind you that there are only a few days left to get early bird pricing at 444.com. Rates go up on August 1st, so head over to the site before then to take advantage of our best deals of the year. Sign up by July 31st, and you'll also get a $35 coupon to use at the FFPC. And if you're worried about paying for a season-long subscription that might not matter, you can rest easy because 444 will roll over your subscription to 2021 if the 2020 season gets canceled. On today's episode, we're going to cover a bunch of news items, then I have a special announcement about the podcast, and we're going to close down the show with some key level-up moments that we've had in our understanding of fantasy football. You know, something like in a video game where you graduate from one level to the next. I think that we can apply that to fantasy. Uh, Joining me once again on this fantastic voyage is Alex Gelhar. Follow him on Twitter at Alex Gelhar and check out all of his work over at 444.com. Here we go again, Alex. What's happening? Nothing new this time. Uh, As you said, we got some more news. Uh, The the level up moment should be fun. A little trip down memory lane for both of us as we developed and becoming better fantasy analysts. Yeah, so let's start off with the news. And I'm going to start off with something that's not necessarily directly correlated to the way most people play fantasy football, and that's the Jamal Adams trade from the Jets to the Seahawks. How do you see this move affecting offensive players in fantasy football, if at all? I normally don't worry too much about coverage players switching teams in fantasy because the true like lockdown corners or you know a, sh- a safety shadowing somebody isn't really the norm in the NFL these days. Coverages are multiple, players are shifting around a lot, and Jamal Adams' best strengths are also kind of in his physical presence in the box as well. He can cover well, but he's a playmaker moving all over the field, so it's not the type of thing where you would really adjust any sort of rankings for um, one individual player or people in his division, in my eyes. But I think it's a good it's a good get for the Seahawks, uh, regardless of uh, how much they gave up for him. Yeah, I think in general this this makes me think more about just the Jets' defense as a whole. They were a defense that performed a bit above expectation last season. I think a lot of people were looking at them as like a value option and best ball this year. So I, I think that that does matter, especially against the pass. And if the Jets defense is generally worse against the pass, that does help opposing offenses, which slightly improves the outlooks for those divisional opponents, the Bills, Dolphins, and Patriots. But like you said, it's hard to take one player's contribution and translate it to really actionable fantasy advice for the opposing offenses. If anything, I'm mostly interested in what this might mean for Sam Darnold. You know, if the Jets have to throw more in an effort to keep up with opposing offenses because their defense is a little bit worse, maybe that ticks Darnold a little bit closer to that tier of like middle-class QBs rather than that last ditch tier of QBs. You know what I mean? Yeah. The normally I would, I, I, you can see that a little more, but the jets also got Bradley McDougal back in the trade. Who's a pretty good safety. So it's not like they're kind of scrambling or bringing somebody up from deeper down the depth chart to fill in the void for Adams. They do have a, a competent, a good starting safety, not quite at the level of Adams, but I think any any gains from those guys, at least in my eyes, would, would be marginable on, on, the, on the other side of the ball. Now, you mentioned what, what this generally means for the Seahawks getting an impact player on defense. I reached out to our IDP guru at 444, Mike Wollert. You can follow him on Twitter, at Mike underscore Wollert. And I just wanted to get his temperature on this deal from an IDP perspective. 
And Mike still values Adams as a DB1 who should slide into that same box role that you talked about that he had for the Jets with Quandre Diggs playing deep for the Seahawks. Uh, Adams will continue to provide tackles as well as pressures on opposing quarterbacks. He had 25 total pressures in 2019, including six and a half sacks and seven other quarterback hits. Mike doesn't expect too many turnovers as Adams only has two interceptions over the past two seasons, but Adams will be an excellent source of tackles still. Mike also believes that Bradley McDougald's IDP value goes up heading to New York. McDougald should be deployed in the box and in coverage, and Mike thinks he's an underrated safety from an IDP perspective. So a little bit of IDP action for you guys there. I know we'd like to cover that stuff when we can. It's, it's not very often we do, uh, but let's move on to some offensive players. Raheem Mostert restructured his contract with the 49ers. And Alex, we've come full circle after discussing Mostert's train demand a couple episodes back. Let's keep this short with that in mind. What's your tweet length reevaluation of San Francisco's backfield now that Mostert has been appeased? You know, I think this clears it up that it's probably going to be more of a one-two punch between Mostert and Tevin Coleman. And I would expect their ADPs to rise. And I feel a little bit more comfortable targeting Mostert now than it did a few weeks ago. Yeah, same. I think... Both of them have very similar values to me. I have Mostert at RB28, Coleman at RB31 in my rankings, which probably puts them somewhere around the fifth or sixth round of a 12-team draft. I think this hurts the backup running backs there in San Francisco more than anything else. Jarek McKinnon goes back to being a late-round dart throw, while Jeff Wilson and Jermichael Hasty go back to being largely undraftable, unfortunately. Uh, but that's enough on the Niners' backfield because we've already touched on them in previous shows. Let's get to the big stuff, COVID-19. And before we get to the news of all the opt-outs, and there have already been a lot of those. And in fact, we, if we would have waited till tomorrow to do the show, we might have had a whole show's worth of you know situations to parse through with regard to these COVID-19 opt-outs. But I want to start with a different sport here, the coronavirus outbreak with the Miami Marlins in, the, in Major League Baseball. Do you think that this is going to have any impact on the NFL's plans for a season from like a top-down perspective? I honestly sure hope it does because the the MLB was operating like kind of a smaller scale version of what the NFL would be because they don't travel with quite as many players and they were trying to do a league unlike the NBA or MLS or NWSL where all the players were in the bubble. They were trying to do a league with traveling and now they're already learning and having to deal with the repercussions of how this throws a wrench into the schedule for not only this team but the teams they were supposed to play and everything else. We haven't really heard anything from the NFL yet on their plans for what happens if a team gets hit with a big breakout. What happens if just a number of big players are, are there? What are, what are the contingency plans? Are there going to be built-in weeks into the schedule? Are they going to try to make them up like snow days at the end of the year? So hopefully this serves as a bit of a red flag to the NFL and they get a better, stricter plan in place because otherwise, you know, it's a little too early to tell right now, but a breakout like this could be the kind of thing that totally derails a season, especially in the NFL, where we only have 16 actual weeks uh, where every team plays. Well, right. And MLB set up their season in a way where teams are playing a lot fewer other teams than they would normally, whereas the NFL still ruled out a regular schedule. They have these teams traveling all over the place in theory, and I don't know, I'm really skeptical that that's going to be able to work. Maybe they'll announce some sort of plan to curtail all of my concerns, but I am worried. Uh, but let's talk about some of these players who have been placed on the reserve COVID-19 list. Um, we're also seeing players opt out uh, because that's an option that's been given to them. And if you're wondering you know, who these players are, we actually have a handy tracking page at 444.com that's being put together by Jennifer Akins, keeping track of which players are opting out, which players are going on the COVID 
reserve list. So head over to the site for that. I'll put a link to it in the show notes and keep track of all these players. In terms of which of the names are standing out the most to me, the big one is Keyshawn Vaughn, right? This was a guy who we thought was going to be competing for the RB1 role in Tampa Bay with Ronald Jones. And now that Vaughn has been placed on the COVID-19 reserve list, I've dropped him down to RB50 in my rankings. I view him as a pure handcuff at this point, and that probably bumps him from out of the single-digit rounds in most drafts. Vaughn could certainly recover and beat those expectations, but if you're drafting today, I don't think you can draft Vaughn with any sort of confidence because this positive COVID test is going to impact his ability to get up to speed with his teammates and the Buccaneers' scheme. And meanwhile, as Keyshawn Vaughn falls, I have... Ronald Jones rising up. He's now my RB30. And honestly, I'm worrying them that that might be a little bit too low. Uh, also, I did bump up Dare Ogunbowale up a little bit, uh, but only a handful of spots to RB66. He's still around players who project for similar pass-catching roles like Naheem Hines, Jalen Richard, and Giovanni Bernard. What do you see going on with this Tampa Bay backfield now that Vaughn has been slowed down a little bit by coronavirus? Well, are we certain that he has it? Because I thought the list also could have been that they may have been in contact with somebody who had it through sort of contact tracing things. That's fair. We don't know for certain with both Vaughn and Justin Jefferson for the Vikings, who's on the list as well, kind of the notable fantasy rookies, that they do have it. But, I mean, hopefully you're not drafting this early. If you were, I think your ranking adjustments would, the ones you just spoke of, would be rather smart. I was somebody who was leaning on we're leaning towards Ronald Jones anyways in this offseason based on, as we talked about on one of the last most accurate podcasts, how well he finished last season on the field. It wasn't quite the same statistically as we would have liked, but if you watch him play those games, he was really looking like he was kind of turning a corner. So I'm, I'm cer- I am I'm was certainly favoring Jones anyways, but now, you know, depending on the news with Vaughn, may have to reach even higher to get him. Uh, and it's just kind of the reality of preparing for the season and drafting in COVID is we're just going to have to be even more vigilant than we normally are to find out what the status of these people is and what their health is uh, as the season approaches. And that's what it's all about. It's that flexibility to change your evaluation on a player in a split second, which is why I kind of went through that process of saying where I move these guys around, because if I'm drafting today, that's how I value them. Now, tomorrow, maybe we get more news on Vaughn. It was some family member who had a false scare and Vaughn's going to be fine. He can report to training camp and all that. In that case, I'll move him back up. I'll move Jones back down a little bit. But overall, I think we have to be living in the moment when we're dealing with these sorts of things and the coronavirus. And it's really going to make for a fast-paced and probably frustrating fantasy season if the, the season happens. Are there any other names that stand out to you among the players who have opted out or have landed on the reserve list for COVID-19? There haven't been too many big fantasy names yet. Uh, it's still early in the process, as you mentioned. Maybe this will all be old news by the time we uh, this podcast hits tomorrow. Devin Funches was a notable one, though. Uh, I just saw that while I was eating dinner before I came on. He's uh, you know, somebody that the Packers signed in free agency, but then they did not draft the wide receiver position during the draft. So now that Funches has decided to opt out, that's going to free up even more targets for the likes of Alan Lazard, uh, Equinemius St. Brown, who's coming back, and Rodgers is a big fan of Marquez Valdez-Scantling. Maybe he's looking for a little bit of a redemption to her. So I think it just kind of makes those guys a little more appealing as late-round wide receiver dart throws, even more than they were before when Funches was still expected to be a part of the offense. If we accept that Devontae Adams is the clear number one there and Alan Lazard is the clear number two, and maybe you don't accept that, you can say if you don't. Oh, I, I do. I, I definitely <laughs> uh, believe Lazard is the number two there. 
Okay, I mean, the reason I say, said that a little skeptically is because that's what we thought about Marquez Valdez-Scantling last year, and we all saw how that worked out. But if we if we accept that Lazard and Adams are the, are the two and the one, were there any of those other guys that you were interested in drafting in like the last round of a best ball, or were you avoiding them altogether? And did this change that for you? Are you going to be more willing to draft MVS or Equinemius St. Brown or Jay Sternberger or maybe one of the backup running backs like Jamal Williams? Like, Did any player vault from being maybe undraftable to draftable in your mind? I think the only one that would maybe jump into the from that uh, precipice of being undraftable to draftable would be Equinemius St. Brown. I know we were all hoping it was going to be Marquez Valdez-Scantling last year, but between a combination of injuries and just some his own play on the field, it never quite developed. But something I've learned as being a Packer fan for these last, uh, you know, entire lifetime is that, especially with Rodgers, though, you got to kind of pay attention to how he treats and just looks at people on the field. And he showed a trust in Alan Lazard right away. And he's mentioned Alan Lazard a lot in press conferences as somebody he wanted to get more time. He has said similar things in the past about Equinemius St. Brown, uh, but the Packers lost him, I believe, to a torn ACL last year. So if there's more target share open and St. Brown is healthy, he comes from a great athletic family. I believe his, his mo- both his mother and father were fantastic athletes. So he's got kind of the pedigree, and if he's getting good opportunities from Aaron Rodgers, could be could be in a good situation to perform, especially in best ball leagues. Yeah, I see the appeal as a dart throw on ESB or an MBS, but to me, the guy who vaults up the most in my estimation, and, and I already was drafting him a little bit, was Jay Sternberger, just because we don't exactly know what he is yet, right? And the tight end position tends to develop a little bit more slowly. They didn't really add anybody at that position to make me fear for Sternberger's playing time. I think that he's going to be the number one tight end there. And if he gets that role, if he gets those snaps and gets enough targets because the wide receivers you know, aren't much to look at beyond those top two, uh, he could be in for like a sneaky low-end value, like a tight end two you know, streamer sort of season. I- I'm curious to see how that plays out with him. Yeah. I, I love Sternberger. I think you're, you're, you're spot on there. I, we might be, my gut tells me we're a year away with him uh, because he lost so much time during his rookie year to injury, but he's a talented guy. They were starting to involve him more last year. As you mentioned, there's kind of a a place up for grabs as the TE1 for the Packers. The guy they drafted in the third round too, though, Deguara, is kind of like a hybrid tight end uh, fullback. He could maybe eat into a little bit of the workload Sternberger might have otherwise had, but he's certainly a guy I like, and I've taken some stabs at late in bigger drafts. All right, last piece of news I want to get to here, and this is a a hat tip or a nod to my 2QBs.com roots. We got to talk about Alex Smith. He's been placed on active pup. Alex Smith is coming back, baby. It's incredible. Over under 0.5 games started for Smith this season. Um, uh, We still kind of need to, I still kind of need to see how his health shakes out, but I would probably take the over on that. I would imagine if he's healthy enough to go, they might, consider him as the starter because he would give the team a much better chance to win uh, at full health than Dwayne Haskins. But he also hasn't played in a couple years now, I think, right? Because it's it's been over a year since he sustained that injury. So he might have quite a bit of rust to knock off and could also just serve as a great veteran backup. It's just a, it's a tremendous story. Alex Smith's a, from everything you hear, an all-around good guy, and he's had a an interesting career, so I'm, I'm wishing the best for him, that's for sure. Yeah, I'm taking the over just because I want it to happen. Let's see him <laughs> just show up there in Week 17, assuming we get to Week 17, and just give a little Alex Smith showcase, either so Washington can see what they have or, or maybe you know try to trade him if they feel comfortable moving forward with, with Dwayne Haskins. Um, nice. I, I'm rooting for you, Alex. Uh, go get him. Uh, all right, uh, with those 
NFL news nuggets out of the way, I want to move on to a bit of personal news related to the podcast. And maybe some of you listeners have already sniffed this out with Alex becoming more of a regular fixture on the show. Alex Gelhar, not Alex Smith, that is. Uh, but I'm going to be stepping away from the podcast. Uh, this isn't my last episode, though. I still have a few more left. And once I'm finished, Alex is going to take over as the host to guide you through the 2020 season and beyond. A lot of different factors have contributed to my decision to opt out this year, and I hope to get back into the podcasting game at some point in the future. But the short version of the story is that my wife and I are expecting our first child in the fall, and that's where the bulk of my attention is going to need to be focused during the football season. And while I'll still be playing fantasy and active in the fantasy community when I can be, I don't believe I'm going to have the bandwidth necessary to deliver content with the depth and the quality that you've come to associate with the most accurate podcast. Um, I'll save all my goodbyes and thank yous for the final episode when it comes, because we still have an episode to finish here. Uh, So for the rest of today's show, I wanted to use this as an opportunity to get to know your new host, Alex, a little bit better. And in doing so, I think we have an opportunity to cover just some basics, some fantasy 101 type topics in preparation for the 2020 season. But before we get into a few of those level up moments that we teased at the beginning of the show, Alex, why don't you share a little bit of background about yourself as a fantasy analyst? Tell us a little bit about your journey at NFL Fantasy. Well, sure. Uh, So, you know, any fantasy analyst was a fantasy player, first and foremost. And I grew up always around uh, the fantasy game. My dad used to run a league back even before Internet leagues were a thing. So he would be getting the paper and filling in the box scores and, you know, manually tabulating points. And every year that league would do a live draft and I would always go. And as I got a little older, my dad would help me or let me pick like a player or two here and there. And finally, Somebody left the league when I was in my early teens, I think, and I said I want in. I, I paid my own entry fee, and I've been a part of that league and, of course, many, many others ever since. So uh, I never really originally expected to work in sports. Um, I moved to L.A. after college to work in TV and film, and I would always drive past the NFL Network offices. And I said, man, it'd be, it'd be pretty fun to work there. If I could work for any sport, it'd be in football. And lo and behold, uh, a couple of years later, I got an opportunity to join the digital features team at the NFL and fantasy was kind of under that umbrella. And right when I was there, it was kind of fortuitous timing because fantasy itself was really starting to blow up the fantasy sports world. And uh, there wasn't a lot of investment or vision behind what they were doing content wise at NFL fantasy. So uh, they had, you know, Fabiano and Adam rank and some other guys putting some stuff out, but I kind of just forced my way in there and helped uh, lead that team and design a lot of our content moving forward and we ended up being able to hire some great writers like Matt Harmon and Matt Franciscovich and had a lot of fun, brought back the podcast over there and uh, it was just all in all a a tremendous opportunity and and one I was very grateful to have. Yeah, that's awesome and for people looking for a little bit more backstory on on Alex, I recommend they go check out your old episode on Backyard Banter with Matt Harmon. Uh, I'll link to that in the show notes. I re-listened to that yesterday just to kind of prep for this podcast and it sounds like you had a really kind of interesting journey there from from not really being involved in fantasy at the NFL to kind of worming your way in there and not worming in a bad way, of course. But <laughs> no, you know, of course not. And and I I think that part of like your journey there and like seeing that that void and going to fill it is something that that showed your drive and and I'm really excited to see how you apply that to this podcast and trying to make 444.com the most accurate podcast better going forward. Um, but let's dig into some other kind of more basic fantasy ideas, like what you grew up learning as you played fantasy. And I, I want to 
frame this as like level up moments, right? Where you were playing fantasy for a certain amount of time and then you're, something clicked for you. A little light bulb went on over your head and you thought, oh man, I just figured something out and now I'm going to be much better at this going forward. Can you give me an example of a level up moment like that for you? Does anything in particular stand out? Yeah. So like a lot of people, you know, I start, I mean, for the older people listening to the podcast, I started out uh, getting magazines every summer. Uh, later I had a chance to write for some of those magazines. So that was pretty cool. But there was a lot of good analysis in those things. And you're looking at stats and box scores. But one kind of level up moment for me was when I was at the NFL and I just had access to the game film. I decided I wanted to start watching it as a way to try and learn more and improve my analysis as a fantasy player. And it's something that I think is really, really valuable. You don't have to watch every single game of every week. Uh, if you have the time, great. It's it's very fun. I used to spend one of my days off at the NFL watching watching game tape all day every day on our couch. So that was that was fun. But the thing that that the film analysis can tell you is obviously we're not all scouts. We're not traveling the country, you know, knowing all of necessarily the fine tune ins and outs of playing the position. But it allows you a couple of things. One. You can see what guys are are winning on the field uh, in ways that you might not on the normal broadcast, whether it be wide receivers consistently getting open or maybe why some of their targets didn't get there. Were they inaccurate from the quarterback or what have you? You can also see how the running backs are seeing the field and just all these sort of little things that can help inform the box score at a much higher level, too. You might see a stat line of so many targets and so many receptions and think that looks kind of weird like how did they have so few receptions maybe it was the way the defense was covering them so you don't want to like discount those moving forward it was just a good way to kind of round out and fill in the gaps in the story that the other stats and analytics and box score uh, don't quite tell you so if any listeners out there are thinking about getting into film watching like this how would you recommend they go about doing that well, I mean, the first thing you got to do is just got to sit down and watch it. There's some great books, too, if people want to try and learn a little more and get kind of ideas of what to be watching and what to look for. Um, I think Pat Kerwan had one that was called Take Your Eye Off the Ball, and Smart Football has got some good books and stuff. So there's there's a lot of resources out there if you want to do that. But I would say is as you start watching more, it's kind of like they always joke about in the league itself that the game slows down a little bit. You start to kind of see things differently and you'll you won't be watching the quarterback so much you'll be watching the other players and, and seeing how they react and and how they're how they're building how they're you know setting up their routes and, and things of that nature so it's just kind of a kind of one of those things you got to put the effort into to truly get the reward but it is it is a fun thing to put that effort into can you give me a specific example of a time you were watching film and you had a realization about a fantasy player like one specific guy that you maybe didn't realize before from just looking at stats yeah, well, I think it, it paid off for me, too, especially, and this was a little bit being lucky, having access to some college game tape. But but scouting some of the incoming guys, it's not always an exact science, but watching like DeAndre Hopkins many moons ago when he was coming into the league and then his rookie year made me really, really high on him as a second-year breakout player just because he was like winning all the time. And he didn't have necessarily the, the greatest quarterback play, but it's just like, man, this guy's got all the tools that – if the target share and the you know the accuracy and other things like that are there for him, he's really going to explode. So that was that was a good one that I can remember quite vividly having having landed on. But then you know there's some other ones where you look at guys maybe Carlos Hyde kind of had a resurgence season and and Mark Ingram watching him in the preseason running, which is the one downside as we talked about not having the preseason. But like you could just see Mark Ingram uh, when he was with the Saints kind of having a bounce back here. He was running harder running with better vision, and then that was one of his better fantasy years in recent memories once he actually got onto the football field. 
I want to dig in a little bit deeper on Hopkins because he's a pretty divisive player this season. A lot of people are saying that he needs to be faded because he's changing teams, because he's not going to have as big of a target share or just as high of a volume of targets in that Arizona Cardinals offense. But you mentioned what he did with bad quarterback play in college. Now he gets to go play with Kyler Murray, one of the most exciting young quarterbacks in the league. And it's not to say he didn't have good quarterback play before with Deshaun Watson, but the fact remains that it seems like DeAndre Hopkins should be set up for a great 2020 season, even if he does regress a little bit in the volume department. What are your expectations for him this year? I mean, my expectations right now, I'm kind of on the side of, of fading him just a touch. Uh, when I was looking at his ADP recently, he's going almost on average at the back end of the first round in 12-team leagues. I think he's got like a 1.12 ADP right now on 4 for 4s uh, rankings for that across the different sites. And that, to me, just feels like a touch rich. I'd rather maybe wait till the middle of that second round or, or tail end to get him. Because as you mentioned, not only is he switching teams, he's not going to have a traditional offseason to get in there. Granted, he's a veteran of his stature and, and ability isn't going to need the most time to get in there. But the Cardinals had two receivers last year that got caught over 100 targets. They also had Kenyon Drake, who was involved in the passing game uh, after they traded for him. The, and the Cardinals themselves weren't as pass-happy happy as a lot of people expected when Cliff Kingsbury came into the NFL. I think they only ranked about middle of the pack in both pass attempts and uh, neutral game pass-to-rush ratio. So that Texans team also isn't the most pass-happy, but given Bill O'Brien's coaching, they got into situations where they were throwing a lot, and with Will Fuller's injury, it was often all on Hopkins. So I think in my assessment of him and what I want to sink in the draft costs, I just want to bake a little bit of caution into it, given the, the new situation, the wealth of other targets, and the potentially balanced, not super pass-happy offense, at least from what we saw last year. Was there ever a, a film-watching moment where you should have exercised more caution? Like, did, did you ever go down the wrong path because of something you saw on film? Oh, God, too many times. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's always a, always a trick, and especially I think the one I was getting too into – focusing too much just on the tape for guys and, and the situation a little bit uh, when they were coming into the league as rookies. But David Cobb was a guy, having watched a lot of Big Ten football, I really liked the way he was running. He was joining a Titans team that had Bishop Sankey coming off a super depressive, uh, super disappointing year. And it seemed like there was going to be a great chance for David Cobb, this later round draft pick who, who could run hard to to succeed there. And he put up some decent tape in the, in college in the preseason. And then it just it never came to be. He wasn't that special of a player, and the draft capital matters a lot of times for players like that, and I think they only got him with a fifth-round pick. So that was one where, excuse me, I relied on my eyes just a touch too much. So do you think the draft capital was the big red flag that you should have seen coming, or was there anything else that could have kind of tipped you off that maybe David Cobb wasn't going to be the player you thought he was? Yeah, I think just a little more. I'm trying to remember who was all on that roster because this was like five years ago now, but I think it was a combination of the roster, the draft capital, the team itself, the type of opportunities he was going to get. He wasn't the greatest pass catching back and thought that could, that could probably improve, but I didn't just, I factored too much on, on some of the what I saw with my eyes and didn't look at the whole picture in, involving draft capital and other roster construction things for the team at that point. Well, and I think that's a good takeaway in general for this whole discussion is that all of these different level up moments are just single arrows in a larger quiver. It's like one big mosaic of tools and resources that we use to be in theory or hopefully good at fantasy football, right? I think it's it's important to not lean on any one piece of analysis or one type of scouting to drive your entire philosophy because 
people are going to be wrong a lot. Like, like you said, you were wrong about David Cobb. I've been wrong a ton about a, a lot of different players. But that, that brings me to my the first level up moment that I want to bring up for myself. And this was the idea that if you want to, you can find a place in fantasy for literally every player through different league formats or settings. Like you can allow different player types to be relevant, whether it's, you know, two QB or super flex propping up the value of quarterbacks, IDP to give defensive players a, a place in fantasy, a unique scoring settings like we see in Scott Fishbowl. PPR is meant to prop up receiving players. Um, return yards can be added as a stat to give value to returners. The value shifts between redraft and dynasty. Ultimately, if you want to find a way to use a certain type of player, you just have to find a format that's going to suit that type of player. And I do think it is very important to understand, however, that you know the, the places for every player can often be filled by, by many different players, right? Most players are somewhat replaceable. And I found that the easiest way to contextualize that replaceability is with tiers or, or buckets of players with similar applications or value. Handcuff running backs all kind of generally have the same purpose in fantasy. Uh, streaming quarterbacks are all kind of the same value. They, they, they're replaceable, right? And we can group players in this way to help shortcut in our mind, okay, how many players are left that I can expect to give me a certain type of scoring profile or a certain number of fantasy points? And while that idea of commodifying players into tiers of similar use or value is borderline offensive to the players as human beings, or maybe it's just straight up offensive, I do think it is necessary from a game theory perspective in fantasy. I found that the best way to develop that understanding of player groupings and which are you know, in large or short supply is to play in many different formats. You join leagues with varying settings, and that's going to help illuminate the nuances of how players score their fantasy points, and that's going to help you define your tiers. So you should play Superflex. You should play tight end premium, because once you see how these things congeal into player values across different formats, it's going to give you the tools or the process to be able to go into a new format. Like let's say your league, your buddy starts a new league or you get invited to the Scott Fishbowl or an experts league that has strange settings. If you've already played in a bunch of different formats, you're going to be adaptable to whatever new formats get thrown at you, whether that's dynasty, redraft, DFS, whatever. And I think that, that that's a big recommendation for me and a big level up moment for me was when I realized how much I got out of playing a variety of different league types. Yeah, I think there's something to be said, too, to just, like you mentioned, getting into different types of leagues, because it's also a good way to to freshen things up in your league every now and again, switching the scoring or changing the rule. You know, Scott Fish does such a great job with it with the Scott Fish Bowl, and that's part of why everybody loves it. But even in your home league, you know, don't be afraid to throw out rule changes every now and again. The league I've played in since I was a teenager was always very, very favoring of quarterbacks, and we had six point per touchdown scoring, but, you know, that really doesn't change it that much. But the guys were always drafting almost like we were basically in a super flex league. So I finally just kind of convinced him. I said, why don't we try it out and let's do super flex? So last year was the first year we did super flex and it got rave reviews. Everybody really enjoyed it. They, they loved kind of the new challenge. They loved the strategic element of now not only worrying about their QB1, but a QB2 and how that changes their scoring and their lineup construction. So it's it's a really great thing, and that's what's so cool about fantasy is that it is such a versatile hobby that it can serve kind of whatever needs you want, whether it's baseline, no interest in football, or IDP, punter, head coach scoring leagues. You can, you can do it all. Yeah, su- surprise. It's more fun if you get to draft more quarterbacks, right? Like these are the most important players 
in their sport on the field. And it makes sense that they should all be relevant. Like all the starting running backs are relevant, right? Like, why don't we do that with quarterbacks? Please, everyone go make Superflex the standard. It's time. No, absolutely. Superflex is so, so much fun. All right, Alex, what was another big level up moment for you? Yeah, I think this one uh, came to me when I was even before I was an analyst, but in the, then it was something I grew to appreciate the the nuance of and sort of the the game theory of, and that's kind of just understanding draft strategy and draft values. Obviously, this will be somewhat determined by the league you're playing in, but a great example is just the late round quarterback strategy. You know, of course, popularized by our friend JJ Zacharyson, understanding how to see the draft kind of at a macro level, how to appreciate when runs are going on and how you can exploit that to your to your benefit, whether you need to get in on it based on potentially your tiered rankings, as you mentioned, or do you have enough players in your tier at that position that you can wait and perhaps extract value by taking somebody from a different position that's falling? You know, just kind of learning all of these things, and it's something you really only can master when you play in a ton of leagues and draft with a lot of other good people and read the writing and theory of a lot of other smart people, but that was just a good a good moment to try and it, that for me in my progression as an analyst where i really felt kind of i was taking my game and and the implication or implementation rather of my game onto the actual fantasy week to week gameplay yeah once you start to think about those roster constructions in a in a bigger picture way i do feel like that is a big step up for your fantasy understanding like for example you shouldn't need to spend as many later picks on the position you're heaviest on in the early rounds if you start your draft with two running backs, say Joe Mixon and Josh Jacobs, your expectation should be for those two players to carry you at the RB position. And then if you draft another RB in the fourth or fifth round, say someone like Mark Ingram or Cam Akers, you've got a really solid baseline for your running back production sewn up just in those first few rounds. So later in the draft, as tempting as it might be to keep loading up on handcuff running backs, hoping to find some upside, you might need to allocate those draft pick resources to other positions because when you spend three of your first four or five selections on running backs, you inherently fell behind at the other positions in those early rounds, and you might need to make up for that handicap by picking a higher volume of wide receivers or a higher volume of tight ends. And and to be fair, this tactic I think is more applicable to best ball drafts where you're locked into the roster you draft for the whole season, but I do think the basic principle generally applies to season-long leagues as well. Whatever you draft early, you don't necessarily need to draft as much of late. Yeah, for sure. It's just certainly, it's something that comes with experience, but there's a lot to learn from different very smart articles out there. And uh, it's it's fun also to me going through that experience of being in multiple leagues and trying out a strategy in one versus, uh, you know, trying out a different strategy in another league and just kind of seeing how those different leagues play out and making my own assessments of the strategy and my drafting ability and, and all that jazz. So what if I ask you about auction strategy? I don't know how much auction drafting you do every season, but this is something that we probably don't cover enough in our podcasting and writing lives. Uh, I'd like to get a, a little bit of feel for where you're at as an auction drafter, if you have any takes. Um, I don't play enough auction drafts to ha- be what I would, you know, as, as savvy of an expert in it as I'm sure other people are in, in the fantasy game here. But I do love auction drafts because to me, the, the thrill of an auction league is that you actually get a shot at every player, you know, and as opposed to a snake draft where, say, you're picking near the turn, you know, you're never getting one of those elite running backs. You're never getting Christian McCaffrey or Saquon or Alvin Kamara or Zeke tumbling down to you at that point in the draft. So with an auction draft, it's fun because you have a chance at every person and it's a different strategy in balancing your budget. I do certainly think there's something uh, to be said about 
taking a more stars versus studs approach, getting a couple of the guys you truly believe in and then filling in the rest of the gaps in your roster with value later because you'll be very surprised how cheap some players come up later. And one thing I like to do, especially if you're in an auction league with people you know, is trying to drive up the price on players that you know they want, whether it's for their analysis or because it's their favorite team or whatever. We did a couple auction drafts back at the NFL, and things would get, you know, it would get heated sometimes when somebody would throw out a player that we knew somebody else loved, and it would be early, and then everybody would, would drive it up on them. You know, maybe it's their sleeper. And then all of a sudden, instead of getting them for five bucks of their budget value, they're having to pay twenty bucks because because everybody else is is jabbing them that way to, to which is part of the strategy because then it, it limits their uh, you know bank account for future picks in the draft. So I think auctions are a great great uh, way to play the game, and it's a very fun different strategy as well. I love that you brought up the stars and scrubs strategy because when I first learned about that or kind of wrapped my brain around that, that was a little mini up level up moment in and of itself, right? I really came to realize that that's kind of what all fantasy sports are, is just finding the best players. Because we talk all the time about these league winners. And while that term is probably overused and not really as applicable as we want it to be, like you still need to field a complete roster when you're on your way to winning a fantasy championship. There is something to be said about the value of having a Christian McCaffrey or a Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes, Michael Thomas, Devonte Adams, right? I think that's another key takeaway is that it, you do want to try to focus on hitting big, right? Hitting that big upside with all your players. And, and you're not going to hit on all of them, but you want the chance to hit on as many of those type of players as you can, right? Yep. Yeah. You want to you wanna get a couple guys. It feel, also feels good to just get a guy where you say, all right, you know, injury notwithstanding, I can count on this guy week in and week out. Because I've had some auction drafts where I, you know, was trying to avoid the stars and scrubs, but then you're left with like a bunch of RB2s, maybe this guy could jump into the top tier if things break his way, or maybe if there's an injury, this guy's going to have a breakout season. But then those you're not left feeling as well with those teams because with the Stars and Scrubs approach where you put a lot of your money into a couple bankable players, there's so much value you can still find, much like with regular drafts, but especially in auction where you know towards the end, if you've got a few bucks saved over, you can land some pretty good players for only a couple dollars if everybody is spent big on other players. Yeah, those heated bidding wars you mentioned earlier are typically going to make for a lot of bargains at the end of the draft if you save just a little bit. You don't have to save a ton, but you need to save enough to be able to go $2 when everybody else is stuck making $1 bids. Uh, one more quick thing on auction strategy before we move on. I want to you know go back to that idea of tiers and I think that they're even more important in an auction draft than they are in a snake draft because when you see players grouped similarly in terms of their production value, like what they're going to do on the field, how they're going to score their fantasy points, you can give them similar dollar values uh, in your rankings for the auction. And one of my mini level ups for this idea was, was the notion that when you're drafting or when you're auctioning from a certain tier of players. Uh, this is another idea that, again, has been popularized by J.J. Zacharyson. There's a you, right? The, the first guy in the tier is probably going to go for too much. And then the next guy, like you're going to kind of trace a you with your finger. It's like graph the value of that tier. The first guy is expensive. Then it gets cheaper. It gets cheaper. And then in the middle of that tier, you're going to get the, probably the cheapest guy from that group. And then as the tier thins out, the prices go back up. The U starts to curl back up on the other side. And I think that this is an important lesson for drafting in an auction is to make sure 
you get who you want from a tier before that tier is empty. Yeah, 100%. I think uh, you mentioned tiers earlier, and I'm glad you brought it back up here because it, it is very applicable in the auction draft start strategy because it'll keep you from overspending on maybe some, on somebody in your tier that comes up first. But I just think uh, tiers in general are something that you once you learn to kind of appreciate them and use them in your own rankings and analysis, that they become so valuable for your, valuable for your draft strategy because then you don't feel beholden to reach for a guy just because they're quote unquote ranked higher and they might come off the board, you'll understand that in, you know in your eyes or your analysis that they're not that far off from other guys in this tier and you might be able to wait and get one later. So it's just a much better way to think about the game as opposed to like the linearity of rankings and who's higher. Well, it also teaches you to be a little bit more player agnostic, which is going to help you find bargains relative to ADP or average costs in an auction. 100%. You need to trust to some extent that the fantasy football market is pretty sharp overall. It's not going to be sharp on every single player, but neither will the individuals making these decisions in a draft. So when you find players who aren't typically available at your pick or at a certain dollar value, you should strongly consider those players, even if you don't particularly like them. And and I think this principle can obviously be taken too far, but if you find yourself thinking, I can't believe this player is available here in a snake draft, or I can't believe this player is only going for $7 in my auction, that player's probably a good pick. Just make sure that you're making that, you know, quote unquote, this guy shouldn't be here read relative to what the market typically does, not relative to your personal biases. And one last thing on this, I I, I just love auction theory. I think there's a lot of value in targeting boring players, targeting guys who have been written off or forgotten. Are there any guys like that that stand out to you for 2020? Like I look at the wide receiver group, players like Keenan Allen or Marvin Jones or Christian Kirk, like those three names are ones that I think are generally being undervalued or underrepresented in terms of their ADP or what we could expect them to go for in auctions. For that reason, they might be players I target in those formats. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think Marvin Jones is a great pick. Um, the, the Texans wide receiver core in general, as we've mentioned, uh, is kind of being a little little overlooked. Uh, I think it's a great place to – auctions are in particular a great spot to look at maybe veteran running backs that had somebody younger drafted at a high spot, um, guys like – a Bark Ingram or Carrion Johnson or Damian Williams because you know the the hot flashy new new guy on the roster is probably going to command a lot more attention in the auction draft and if you throw that name out first but you're okay you know getting the bat getting the old, the old veteran later so you know for instance early in the auction you throw up you nominate Clyde Edwards-Helaire and then it turns into a big bidding war and he goes for thirty bucks. And then 20, 30 minutes later, somebody else pops up Damian Williams or you that and get him for four or five. I think it's a it's definitely a good way to look at an opportunity to extract value. Do you have anything else on this general idea of draft strategy and understanding draft values uh, before we move on to my last level up? No, I think we've had a pretty, pretty thorough thing here. The only other thing I always say, too, is make sure when you're drafting to know your league, because yeah. all these articles we're going to write. And other other sites are going to write or podcasts are going to hear are much more generic. And knowing your league is critical because, but whether it's based on scoring or the people in your league, you know I, that league I've mentioned that I've been in since I was in my teens. Um, many of these guys have been in it for almost multiple decades with me, so I, I know them a fair amount. I know some of the types of players they like. I know a little bit of how they're going to approach the drafts as well. So. It's extra information like that that you can arm yourself when you go into a draft can really help help you come out on top rather than just relying on rankings or articles or strategy from, you know, yahoos like you and me. Yeah, and that ties back into that idea of 
finding a place for every fantasy player. In some leagues, though, certain players don't have a place, right? And you need to understand that by understanding your league's rules. My last level up is more towards in-season than draft strategy. And it was when I kind of got into trying to predict game script through statistics. The simplest way to do this is to look at over-under game totals, right? If a, if a game has a high total, that generally implies that a lot of points are going to be scored. If a lot of points are going to be scored, that means we're going to see a fair number of touchdowns and yardage, and that's going to translate to fantasy production. But I have also dug a lot deeper into pace stats and specific matchups, you know, looking at things like DVOA or expected points added. Uh, DVOA is a football outsider statistic. Uh, Got to give them credit. Um, like if you can identify the confluence of, you know, a bad defense versus a bad defense. What is that going to do to the game script? Well, if both defenses are bad, even if the offenses aren't great, both teams are going to be able to move the ball. Both teams are going to be able to score points. And, and I think identifying that sort of matchup might even be more important than finding the confluence of a good offense versus a good offense, right? Because good offenses are better at controlling the flow or the pace of the game. And if two good offenses are squaring off, each team is incentivized to keep the other team's offense off the field. So they're going to maybe try to control the ball with sustained drives, running the ball. It doesn't always work, but those good offense versus good offense games can often end up a little more lopsided than we might expect if one team is just more successful in reducing the other team's possessions. Yeah. Bad defense versus bad defense, on the other hand, just means that both teams are probably going to be able to move the ball at will. You might still see teams try to control the clock to keep their bad defense off the field, but the opponent's going to get the ball the ball back eventually, and they might still be able to score quickly because the opposing defense is poor. It, essentially, a bad defense versus bad defense matchup sets a better floor for scoring, one that's most applicable, I think, to the best players on an offense, the fantasy stars, right? Because if a defense is bad, they're not going to be able to stop anybody, and with that in mind those opposing offenses are going to use their best players, right? Like Aaron Rodgers isn't going to be like, oh man, this defense stinks. I'm just going to light them up with Marquez Valdez, Scantling, and Equinemius St. Brown. He's going to be like, no, if, if this defense is bad, I'm going to feed Devontae and I'm going to feed Aaron Jones, right? And mm-hmm. and that was another mini level up for me, realizing that facing a good defense is often the correct time to go with a secondary option in an offense Whereas against a bad defense, that's when you want to use the stars. And I think this is more applicable to DFS, but it does matter in your weekly matchups. It's not always going to work out this way, right? There's a constant push and pull between the overall matchup and more granular matchups, you know, like run defense versus run offense, pass defense versus pass offense. I think you need to look at matchups from as many angles as possible and then use that holistic understanding to try to figure out which players are going to matter the most for fantasy. And if you can tie into that an expectation for game flow or game script, like how many possessions each team might be expected to get, like Mm -hmm. you're going to get a really big leg up in terms of your weekly output in seasonal leagues and in DFS. Yeah, I think there's a lot of little little things that you've mentioned in those types of stats, especially that can be predictive for, maybe not predictive, but can be beneficial in a DFS setting. Like I always liked to try and find, you know, the cheapest sort of like defense that was maybe at home and was going to be favored. You know, it didn't have to be, I didn't need the Ravens versus the Jets or something like that. You know, I would just try to find those affordable ones. So like you mentioned, games with a high over under, if I was having to start a kicker in DFS back in the day, I would, I would look for a, a high point total and just find like the cheapest guy in one of those situations. There's other ways to look at it, but you know, once you start, as you mentioned, attacking these matchups from a number of angles, you find sometimes little 
leverage points or little insights that can really really make a difference for your understanding of the game and your ability to to strategize and and win more week-to-week matchups whether it be dfs or season long yeah and sometimes it's just as simple as looking at the fantasy points against for a certain position like the cardinals with tight ends last year that's probably not (laughs) going to be the case again this year but that sort of stuff works too it's just not again it's it's about having an entire toolbox to pull from not just looking at one number one stat one piece of analysis to drive your decision like try to gather more information and yes there's there's such a thing as information overload you know paralysis by analysis but i think you need to find what works for you and figure out what tools you're most adept at implementing when it's time to make these sorts of decisions both in drafts and in season 100 uh any other level ups here before we sign off alex no, I think I, I feel completely leveled up, you know. I want to go uh, cash in all the all my loot from this podcast and uh, get, get some more equipment as I continue on this fantasy adventure. Go spend those rupees, man. you got to do it. <laughs> I had to go full nerd there to, to wrap this up. It, we had to. I mean, fa- fantasy football, let's be real, is, is a pretty nerdy endeavor, right? As a bunch of bunch of grown men looking at spreadsheets, uh, talking about a fake game about a game, so it doesn't doesn't get much nerdier than that. But um, that's yeah. why we love it. I love I love spreadsheets, man. Um, why don't you tell the listeners where they can find you, where they can find your stuff? Yeah, well, as usual, you can find me on Twitter at Alex Galhar, and I'll have more articles coming out in the next couple weeks, uh, fantasy player debates and other things like that on four for four dot com. And my name is Greg Smith. You can find me on Twitter at Greg Sauce. Please give us a rating and review of the show. Help Alex out as he uh, gets ready to take over for me on this podcast feed. Uh, John and Anthony aren't going anywhere, by the way. They're going to stick around, of course. But I'll let you know more about uh, my plans to sign off, eventually opt out for the 2020 season, as it were. Uh, but <laughs> well played. Well played. Yeah, yeah got to do it. And um, yeah, otherwise, uh, head over to 444. Take advantage of that early bird discount while you still can. That expires July 31st. And until next week, thanks for listening to the Most Accurate Podcast.